Berlin Wall fell. And it's the following year, 1990, 1991, and George H.W. Bush is talking about a new world order. I first heard this on the radio, and I remember a chill going down my spine and thinking, I can't believe that after all of this, isn't this what the Americans and the British, the Allies, fought World War II and against the communists exactly to avoid having this kind of new world order? And here it is. Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser and this is the podcast where we talk to interesting, well-known people and we try and drill down into their core beliefs and try and work out what it is they're on about. And today I'm here in Jerusalem uh, with the very interesting Yoram Hazoni, who um, I ought to tell you how uh, I, I came to be interested in your work. I didn't know anything about your work, I'm afraid, but I picked up off of the bookshelf The Virtue of Nationalism and I read it it's a book that's out, is it this year or late last year? Exactly a year ago. Exactly a year ago. Uh, won sort of lots of prizes in the States, conservative book of the year type of thing. The title obviously just got me and uh, I was sort of open-mouthed when I read it. I was, I was shocked, but shocked in a good way. <laughs> and uh, the, the essay you wrote was beautiful. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you very really much beautiful. indeed. Thank you very much indeed. Anyway, that's why that's why we're sitting here, and that's why I want to talk to you, and that's why I want to sort of um, have a discussion about you know what it is that you you believe and where you've come from and so forth. So what we normally do with these confessions uh, discussions is we just start by talking a little bit about you. So perhaps you'd um, you'd tell me where you were brought up and something about the sort of values that you imbibed at home and just I'll a little do my bit best. about your backstory. I'll try. Uh, so if I start stammering or something out of embarrassment, then you'll you'll just encourage me. Give me a hug or something. I, I, will. I, I was born in uh, in Israel in in Rehovot. Um, my my family came from uh, Eastern Europe in the 1920s and the 1930s. Uh, so the so the background is Zionist, meaning meaning Jewish nationalists. Let let let's go to Israel and try to try to create a, a Jewish state, like it says in the Bible. Uh, but it was a labor Zionist family, meaning if you think of uh, David Ben-Gurion and so on. So they, my, my family was kind of on the the traditionalist uh, side. Labor. Of labor, yes. Yeah. So my, my, my grandfather was involved in setting up a synagogue, but most of the people in his neighborhood weren't so happy about it. So you can... <laughs> yes, that, I know that, that. that. That's the picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, my, my, my father was trained as a, a physicist at the Hebrew University. He uh, studied in, uh, in France back in, back in those days. The big alliance was between Israel and France, and the French were helping Israel build a nuclear reactor. My father learned physics and uh, ended up uh, in Princeton, New Jersey, okay. which is where I grew up. I was born in Israel, but I was a year old when we got to Princeton. And I I spent the you know the the, for the first decades of my life in in that environment with my father being uh, being being a professor, but always saying, uh, you know, we don't really live the way Jews are supposed to live. Really, if you want to see how Jews are supposed to live, go visit your 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 uncle Itzhak and your aunt Linda in Israel. Right. So that was that was kind of the background. So it was religious in kind of a. Uh, sentimental sense, but without without very much knowledge, and uh, politically, 
um, you would think that you know you would think that labor Zionist is uh, is on the left, but my father uh, became a conservative, right. and uh, you know this is this is something you're probably familiar with that that there are all sorts of things that. Um, that uh, labor nationalists and conservative nationalists have strongly in common, which you know they don't share so much with liberals, yeah. Yeah. and uh, so uh, so for, for when I was growing up, I, I didn't know enough to be surprised. It you know it, it w- was was just kind of uh, natural. My father was a, a a Jewish Israeli nationalist, and you transplant him in. America, and he was he was an American nationalist, and he believed in Jewish traditions and the restoration and greatness of the the Jewish and the Israeli nation. And when you put him in America, he believed in American traditions and the American exceptionalism too. Yeah, I I never heard words like exceptionalism right. when I was growing up. Exceptionalism is a very it's a it's a very strange word. I mean, Jews Jews in general, their tradition is about you know the Jews being special. And uh, of course, uh, in different generations, Jews can have great admiration for other nations and the role that they play. So I'm a great longtime fan. Probably some of your listeners will think it's nauseating, but really quite a a fan of England for all sorts of reasons. And I love America, but, but Israel is home. So I kind of see them as a as a family of, of nations in different ways created by scripture. Before we come to the core of your argument and start talking about nationalism, which I'm fascinated by, just tell me something of the trajectory of you coming out of Princeton, as it were. So you were there as a child, quite a bookish environment, I imagine, if your father's a professor. And your mum, what's your mum? What's my, 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 my mother was into opera, but you see, I, I, I actually didn't know her well because she she's... Uh, uh, she's schizophrenic, uh, and uh, I, I continue to take care of her today. Oh, I see. She lives here in Israel. Here in Israel, yes. You went to school in Princeton and then to university there too. I, I went to school in, in in Princeton and then to university at Princeton. I met my wife Yael, and uh, we. I, I had just spent a year in, in, in Israel, and I was very excited about uh, Torah and Judaism and, and, and going to Israel. And uh, we kind of uh, participated in a, in, a, in a kind of a revival moment. People don't really remember this. You know, people today think that, that the Reagan years were all about, you know, economic liberty. But it, 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 wasn't, it really wasn't just that. And there, there was a multi-denominational religious revival going on uh, going on at Princeton and on other campus, Jews returning to Judaism and, and, and Catholics becoming more Catholic and Protestants becoming more Protestant. And Reagan uh, becoming more religious. The environment was hopping with this kind of this kind of ferment. And we, we founded a magazine called the Princeton Tory, uh, which, which was all about this, you know, this kind of stuff. Uh, during college, I uh, I went to yeshiva in Israel. At various points, afterwards, went to Rutgers University, where I did a doctorate in political theory, in the, the same department that Patrick Dinian was doing his doctorate at almost the oh, same right. time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and fellow and, traveler. In many ways, yes. Yeah, yeah. And and then off we went. We uh, Yell and I married and uh, moved to Israel. I worked uh, for. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu for four years, 
uh, before setting up a conservative uh, research institute called uh, the, Shal- the Shalem Center, which what I What did you do for Bibi? Everything. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> You're to blame. <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever needed to be done, I did. Wow, okay, right. I, I mean, I... Uh, mostly, I helped him. I helped him with two books, but in I, but I did everything, everything that needed to be done. I, I, I mean, the the Israeli political teams are very, very small in comparison to other countries. So, right. did, did did your father think uh, you, his sort of newly religious son? Were you were you uh, did he sort of like look as, askance slightly at your sort of increasingly not not my father uh-huh. my my father. My father was always telling me stories about, you know, the way Jews are really supposed to live. Okay. So, you know, it, he's to blame. <laughs> I, 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 I did this as a loyalist, not as a rebel. Right, right, right. I mean, a rebel is legitimate too, but it happens that my, you know, my, my setting was loyalist. So it sounds like a lot of the people I have on this show have sort of stories where they begin as one thing. Often, tons and tons of people have begun on the hard left and then made a journey. But you don't seem to have... You seem to have quite no, stable in your no, political it's, it's kind, views. It's kind of shocking. I actually went back just a few weeks ago and for the first time in many years and I opened the Princeton Tory, our magazine from... Tory print- as in T-O-R. Tory, Tory. Tory, Tory as like, in... Okay, like from, 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 right. from yes, you yes. guys, yes. Yeah, yeah. Just so, making sure I got the accent right. <laughs> I'm, I know, maybe I said it wrong. The Tory. <laughs> yeah, so I opened the Tory and, and, uh, and, and, and read my first... Uh, essay, which was about uh, church and state. I was 19 years old when I read it, and I, I don't think I've changed my mind on anything. <laughs> it's, it's ju- That's it's slightly just, shocking in it, a way, it's, isn't it? It's embarrassing. <laughs> you know what that means? It means that since I was 19, I haven't learned anything. <laughs> but there it is. That's, that's what it is. Yeah, Anybody yeah, yeah. can go look at this. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. the same me. It's like static. And what's your PhD? What was your political sort of philosophy stuff about? I, I did uh, the political thought of the book of Jeremiah, which mixed in all sorts of other, you know, uh, Thomas Kuhn and Karl Mannheim and all sorts of other things. But the the real interest was uh, these were really the very first days when, when political theory programs were allowing that maybe the Bible could be relevant. So, you know, the, that was uh, Michael Walzer published a book yeah. and, and Aaron Woldovsky had a couple of books and, and Shmuel Trigano and Dan Elazar. So I, I was one of the first uh, uh, PhDs in political theory that that went down that road. And I it's also, I mean, I, I've also really stuck with that trajectory ever since. I mean, I loved Plato. I enjoyed Aristotle. But I never thought that any of it was as good as scripture for for believers and non-believers, for people who, I mean, just as uh, a proposal for how to how to look at the political world, I I think the prophets are the best. Let's let's get to the core of it then. So the um, your your book on nationalism, which I'm going to ask you to just say a few words about in a second, it presents as a work of political theory, I guess, but it also is, as you've indicated, steeped in sort of biblical view of the nation. So can you maybe say something a little bit about the sort of... 
Well, there's nothing there's nothing hidden about it. I mean, this book, The Virtue of Nationalism, the new book, it 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 doesn't explicitly go into theology, and that's not because I'm not interested in the subject. It's actually because my my editor thought that it would sell better and made me take it out. Oh, that's so, shocking! So, um, <laughs> okay, it's it, probably true, but it's depressing. I, I, but I suspect that it was good advice. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but there's no secret. Uh, the 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 theory is. In sort of in its, you know, most I'll say it in a very sweeping way, and then if you want, we can go into detail. But, um, but the the biblical politics is is uh, a school of thought, right? I mean, the the different prophets they don't all say the same thing; they they can disagree with one another. But as a school of thought, their view is that the one God is not accessible in a direct and absolute and clear way to pretty much anyone. So we can get into, you know, how Moses was greater, but that's the yeah, ge- yeah. that's the general picture. And so when it comes to politics, you have this astonishing thing, which is that all of the uh, the gods of the ancient Middle East, you know, each one of them had, you know, had a nation. And when the nation got strong enough, they, they all do the same thing. They all command the nation to go out and conquer the four corners of the earth. And they have all sorts of good reasons for it. It's not, you know, for fun. They, they, they want to bring peace and prosperity to the world. And they see all of the, war, the, the, the warring and the fighting among, among nations is unnecessary. So the God tells Hammurabi or Sancheriv or whoever it is, Nebuchadnezzar, go out, conquer the four corners of the, of, of the earth and bring peace and prosperity to mankind. That's the mission. And as, as far as I know, Hebrew Bible is completely unique in that there's one God, and he's creator of heaven and earth, uh, and he picks Abraham and his descendants, Abraham, Moses, and so on. And he could also say, go out and conquer the four corners of the earth, because after all, you know, he, he, he's the wisest of them all. He knows the truth, so why, why doesn't he? But, but he doesn't. Instead, what he does is he's the first God in mankind's history, as far as I know, who gives borders to his nation and says, I've given you this land, but on the other side, that's somebody else's land. I've given it to other peoples, and you're not allowed to cross. And that's one of the, uh, I would say, truly revolutionary aspects about Hebrew Bible is that God, creator of heaven and earth, wants to see borders. He wants to see, he, he's, he's talking to Moses about, you know, what's presumably the the best way to live and all human beings are supposed to benefit from this but you're not allowed to go and conquer it you're, you're not allowed to to go and impose it on everybody that that's just not a solution for the problem. so that's the way that makes it more amenable to somebody with my leftist background who sort of starts to twitch a little bit though actually though really i'm actually in agreement with you but um so i got actually, i got to work harder to make no no, it. no you're you're i think you're right but the way the way in which i sort of feel more comfortable with it being put is that you know, this is a god that doesn't believe in imperialism. This is a god that believes in you know you have a particular bounded place, a space to flourish, um, but you're not you're not you're not to go and subdue other people. And this that idea, which I, which is the in a way, it's the cornerstone of your book on it nationalism, is. isn't it? Yes. G- give us the the book talk. Give us the little pricey of the book <laughs> because I think this is the this for me is just absolutely fascinating stuff. Well, the. The book takes a position on uh, on on 
the way to look at Western history, and it takes a position <clears throat> on political theory or political philosophy, meaning an, an argument about why we should be in favor of a world of independent nations. So just, just a, a couple of sentences about this historical subject. I begin the book uh, by, uh, by asking the question. So uh, in the ancient Near East, in the world of the Bible, the, the Israelites, their thinkers stand for this idea of many bordered nations, what today we call national independence or national self-determination. And, 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 and they love it not just when, when Israel is independent, but when other nations are, as long as they stay within their territory. And this is uh, opposed to what we later call, let's call that nationalism, the idea that the world is, is governed best when, uh, when it consists of many independent nations, each with its own traditions and its own, 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 own course, charting its own course. And that's as opposed to imperialism, which is this other, also you know, on its face, reasonable view, suppress all... Difference. Right, all, all, suppress all violence by suppressing all difference. <clears throat> You know, so somebody will be in charge, and everybody will will flourish, and it's uh, it's almost kind of like a Mark Zuckerberg kind of a view of the, <laughs> yes, the world that, is, yeah. that you know there's no need for violence. We'll all just be yeah. you know like I say, yeah. and it'll be okay, yeah. right? Like well, that. there'll be one, right? We'll the be Coke one. advert, yeah. right? So Western history ends up being kind of a seesaw, which you don't necessarily find in every other. Region, for example, the, the 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 Islamic world doesn't really have this seesaw between the the Jewish inheritance, which is nationalist and deplores empire, and the Roman inheritance, which which picks up you know pick, picks up where the Babylonians and the Persians and 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 Alexander left off with this theory of Pax Romana that we will subdue all the nations. And in this way, bring peace and prosperity. And Christianity is probably on the on the Roman side of this of this um, division that you're describing here. Well, I guess, or Pauline Christianity at least. Well, you know, I, I I've I've gotten into trouble with this because I I assumed that the easiest way to think about this would be. Uh, to see the Protestants, certainly the Calvinists and the Anglicans, as rebelling against the Catholic Church, meaning the Universal Church, the uh, the, the Holy Roman Empire, really is, at least in theory, it, its aim is one creed for for mankind and 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 one emperor to to bring that about. So it's it's in that way familiar, and so in 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 the book I was, you know, I I said. It, Really, when, when, when you look at the English in 1534 rebelling against this or the Dutch in 1581, there we see the birth of the modern political world, the idea of a world of in, in independent nations. And it's directly related to the Protestant return to the, to the Jewish Old Testament. They literally read about God loving an independent nation and hating empire because of its oppression and they and and the dutch and the english and the scots and they see themselves as israel in in the, this way we're going to create jerusalem here in in england so that that's more or less the way that i put it in the book since the book came out i've had many many catholic readers both in across europe and in america who love the book but want to set me straight on this. Patrick Denino, right? I guess, as well. <laughs> um, among others. And because they, they want to say, 
look, Yoram, uh, only under Catholicism was there the consolidation of the kinds of effectively independent nations that allowed, in the end, for Henry VIII to declare independence officially. That that, that break is prepared by Catholic traditions which, uh, which are already steeped in Old Testament. So that's an argument that I, I don't know enough to, to take sides on it, but I, I'm very happy to have my Protestant friends and my Catholic friends work this out. But, but, but even before you get to a sort of um, Protestant, before we get to the Reformation, normally before we get to the Reformation, I'm, uh, I'm very interested in Daniel Biarin and his, his, his stuff on, on St. Paul. And one of the things he says in his, uh, his book on St. Paul is that one of the differences between Christianity, uh, Pauline Christianity and Judaism is when Pauline Christianity sort of abolishes the sort of divisions, no longer Jew and Greek and all this sort of stuff. And you get this a sort of universalism that begins with St. Paul. And, and he says something sort of, I remember being quite shocked by it. I'm going to paraphrase it and I'm not going to get it quite right. But he said, one of the best things about Judaism is that its concern is, folk, is limited uh, on people in a particular place. One of the worst things about Judaism is exactly the same. <laughs> and he said, he said, i.e. he doesn't care about other people. This, this is sort of what he puts. And, and he said, the best thing about Christianity is it does care about, as it were, everybody. And that's also the worst thing about Christianity too, because it, it makes Christianity uh, susceptible to wanting to convert the world in, and, 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 as it were, this whole idea of empire. So you get this, you get this really fascinating contrast, at least in his work, between a Jewish political philosophy, which is particularist and rejects the universal, and there's good and bad about that, yeah, and it, there's good and bad about the universalist position as well. As a caricature, it's it's good. Okay, but it's not. I'm not sure it's actually fair to either side. Okay, I I, I don't know if that maybe it'd be more fun if I just said yes. Yeah, yeah, you know, but yeah, no, no. but I I I I think it's not sufficiently sophisticated. Um, Christianity gets its universalism from Hebrew Bible, and 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 Christian readers of the Bible know this. It's not. I mean yeah. that 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 that's not a surprise. From Isaiah, probably. Uh, or... Well, you, certainly from Isaiah and, and Ezekiel and and Jeremiah and Amos, but but also from uh, from Abraham and Moses. The very first thing God tells Abraham is, I mean, the very first thing when He tells him to 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 you know to 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 leave Mesopotamia and go live on a hill in 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 Canaan in the land of Israel, the first thing God tells him is I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So that that that's that's the first pitch. That's the first swing that he, that you know that that Scripture takes at it, and already right there you have. You're building a bordered nation, you know, and, and, and not an empire on the one hand, but on the other hand, the, the view is to all the families of the earth. The, the purpose of the entire move is that there should be a blessing for all the families of the earth. So how does that, that work out? There's plenty to talk about. But, but it's not fair to say that, that the universal is, is missing. It's, it's fair to say that the, I, I would put it, that Jews believe that the way to redeem the world is through the redemption first of your nation. And that, that is a different strategy. 
Uh, it, it is very different from a willingness to take up the Roman Empire and make it holy, which is is a completely different vision with a completely different different mission. I can see why you're. Is it chair of the Burke, the the Edmund Burke, or you have some strong connection, don't you, with the Edmund Burke Society the, the, in the U.S.? The, there's there's a new Edmund Burke Foundation, which uh-huh. which I, I've I, I've gotten to be the the chair of somehow. Uh-huh. But this is a little platoons before little platoons were ever sort of uh, were ever thought about. That you know that things. Well, I told you, I I I have a a deep seated admiration for the English. And it's not it's not just because of, you know, my love for Isaac Newton. It's also because of the common law and the traditionalism that makes England more parallel to Israel than than any other people that I know of. Here's the so far listeners to this might well think this is an interesting but esoteric conversation about uh, the Hebrew scriptures and the history of Christianity. And the bit where I read your book that suddenly the sort of, oh my word, uh, is when you started talking about two different reactions to the Holocaust. That uh, if you see the Holocaust as, uh, or if you see the Nazis, the evil of the Nazis as being essentially an evil of nationalism, then it'll be the reaction, the proper reaction of that will be a sort of anti-nationalism which may well be the European Union, a way of dissolving national borders. And, but if you see, as you do, that the evil of the Nazis was that they wanted to build a Reich, that they wanted an empire, another version of this, then actually the, the answer to uh, the, the res- proper response to the Nazis isn't the European Union, but is actually something much more like Israel. Yes. <laughs> like it. So there was yes. this contrast in your book, which you know, I mean, we were going through Brexit. We're still going through Brexit, and the and the, and, and and reading this as an Englishman in the course of our Brexit discussions about this contrast between the European Union and Israel as two different responses to the to the Second World War and to the horrors of the Second World War. That's what blew me away, and I, I'd never read anybody say that before. I I, I think it's very clear. Israelis certainly see themselves. Uh, I, I mean, it's 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 one of the strongest and clearest pieces of of mainstream Israeli culture across the religious and political spectrum. Is the sense that Israel is the appropriate and and best possible response to the Holocaust for Israelis, and this this is what our children learn in schools for Israelis. Ben Gurion once—it's a very famous statement. Ben Gurion once said that that why did the Jews die in the Holocaust for one sin, the sin of weakness, because we did not arm ourselves, because we did not uh, know how to defend our children politically, militarily. That's why this happened to us, and Israel to this day is steeped in this, is flush with this sense that when you go to the army. What you are doing is you are learning to protect your people to make up for what happened. It, it's not going to happen again, not because they're, you know, because we'll eliminate wars and we'll eliminate fighting. It's not going to happen again because whatever the next time is, we'll have the ability to defend our children. So that one message, and I grew up with that. I have to say I grew up with that as well. So my dad, who's Jewish, um, and and very rarely talked about his Judaism, but he was uh, he worked in the RAF at Royal Air Force, and he was a weapon systems designer. And as I, as a young lefty student, 
found you know him designing bombs and so forth really very difficult and the only time I ever remember him talking about his Jewishness is when I challenged him on what it is that he was doing as a sort of you know 17 18 year old who thought this was all so horrific and he said they won't do it to us again you know I mean and that's the only time I remember him talking about it and for me it was like it was an extraordinary moment it's just what you're saying so many people say it. My, you know, my family said it, and 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 I, I teach it to my kids. And and uh, the great shock was discovering, you know, quite late in life. I grew I grew up in America. I moved back to Israel. I didn't know much about uh, Europe really until, you know, like the 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 1990s when when people in Israel started talking about a new borderless Middle East, and you know, and 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 then suddenly I started to think about the European Union, and then I. I discovered that leading Europeans, intellectuals and statesmen, thoughtful people, they think that the EU is the answer to the Holocaust. And they're, they're quite serious about this. I mean, it's exactly a mirror image. Here I'm saying that a nation needs to be able to defend its children. It's a, it's a fundamental moral obligation. And they're, they're saying, no, the moral obligation is to disarm. You know, if, if we're Germans, then our obligation is to disarm, to disarm Germany and to disarm everybody else. And, and, and Merkel still talks like this. Even Macron talks like this. It's an amazing thing, but, but it really is. as you, it, it's, it's the mirror image. What is the answer to the Holocaust? Is it strong, independent nations led by good people protecting their own way of life and their own children? Or is it eliminate the borders, eliminate the nations, which means in the end, a new empire. The whole stuff about strength that you talk about that is compelling is also, I suppose, strength can be used for good and ill. That's, that's, of that's, course. That's, that's, that's the problem. So how, and, you know, the word that doesn't appear in your book, maybe it appears very, a few couple of times, is Palestinians, I don't know, but it doesn't appear very much and so forth. So how do we work out how a strong independent nation like Israel will sit alongside the national aspiration for self-determination of Palestinian people. How do those two things sit along my, each other? My book is not a utopian book, and I, I, I do my best to make, to make this clear, but I, I'm always kind of afraid that people won't understand what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't believe that it's possible to come up with some kind of a, an abstract theory which will just solve the world's political problems. Human beings are not going to stop gathering power and using power for good and for evil you know maybe someone can see beyond that but you know i'm not good enough i don't i i can't see that far in the future what the book tries proposes to do is something much less ambitious it proposes to make the claim that if we have many independent nations then we'll be better off than if we're in a struggle to create a universal empire, or maybe there's two or three of them that are coming up with these universal well, theories. I agree with you. On no, this. no, I understand. But so the the reason the, the reason that I emphasize this is because I don't believe I have a formula for solving everything. Here's here's one of the everythings that I don't know how to solve, and I don't I don't think I will solve it. If you have nations with borders, then they're going to fight about borders. It doesn't mean that you're going to draw borders and then there's going to be peace. No, human beings are going to, they're going to fight about borders. And that, that means that we're going to have very long and often terrible conflicts between the English and the Irish. 
which is still going on after you know so many centuries, or between the Indians and the Pakistanis, and the the Jews versus the Arabs is it's one of these uh, nationalist conflicts. It's let's say a border conflict between two nations, and I know in Israel I, I have many friends who are. Rightists who, th- who will say, you can't create a Palestinian state in the West Bank. Israel is 50 kilometers wide. It, there's no place here, and that's our biblical homeland. And they, they have all sorts of good good reasons why there can't be a Palestinian state. And that today t- tends to be the consensus in Israel. But I also have good friends who are no less Zionist than I am. They're not less Jewish nationalists who argue that it's not for the sake of being good to the Palestinians that we have to give them a state. It's for the sake of Israel. We want a Jewish state. We're Jewish nationalists. And so you can't absorb a population this size of of Arabs into Israel. Both sides of that argument can be and and are in Israel usually presented in nationalist terms. And I don't don't have an answer for you. I mean, we could talk. I understand that way, but I just want to press you on one part of this and only only one part of it. I don't want to go on about this, but but on one part I want to press you. And and I wouldn't necessarily do so as a political philosopher, but as somebody who's been close to Bibi and as an advisor to Netanyahu, I guess guess it's legitimate for me to press you. So I suppose the question is... It's all legitimate. Do you think... That rhetoric of strength, which you justify, and I understand, can be used as an alibi sometimes to behave in ways that are not in the best traditions of the Hebrew scriptures morally. Sure. Of course. I mean, how, yeah. how could that not be? We're, we're human. And it's very difficult to step outside of, outside of your own perspective. To me, and this is, again, it's, it's a view that I grew up with, so, you know, I can pretend that I've challenged it deeply, but I don't, you know, you might say I haven't. The view that I grew up with is a view that says we are deeply sympathetic. We Jews are deeply sympathetic to the, the yearning and the desires of the Arab peoples for independence and self-determination, but they have lands from Morocco to Iraq, and in the balance of conflicting uh, justifiable arguments, the argument that someplace in the world there should be 50 kilometers of width for the Jews to be in their homeland, that's an argument that in, in my family is considered to be sufficient. It's not sufficient to justify anything we might do, but it's sufficient to justify the general approach that there doesn't, that there doesn't need to be yet another independent Arab state, and we should do what we can to to help the Palestinians. So I think that's in a different in a different framework. I think that's perfectly understandable. Answer within the within the terms of your particular philosophy. I wonder, however, if we move away from Israel, start talking about the United States, and talk about something like, for example, the invasion of Iraq, whether you would start to feel uncomfortable about that 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 as an expression of imperialism of of um of the, an attempt by the Amer- america to to be concerned with things far outside its borders I, i'm very uncomfortable right i, I mean it, the two examples are very different from one another e- even if you think that the you know that israel's wrong still the, they were contrasting examples right, actually, no, right? I, they're, they're beautifully <laughs> contrasting yeah. i mean in one case you're talking about about the immediate 
handful of kilometers around Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And in the other case, you're talking about the other side of the planet. Yeah. So I can see why you, I can see your position, how it works with Israel and Israel's approach to things. So I'm, I'm really now moving to the United States and then talking about, I guess the, you know, the the, the interventions all around the world. I would yeah, expected I, you I, to I be. Would, I would distinguish, and and I I admit this is not a sharp distinction, but I do think there is a distinction to be drawn between what I'm calling border disputes that the Indians feel like Kashmir should be an integral part yeah. of India, that yeah. the, the British are not willing to let go of North Ireland, that Israel is not willing to let go of the West Bank. These kinds of examples, I think that they're different in kind from imperialism, which says, in principle, any nation I can conquer is a nation I should rule. That's not an argument about borders. That's a, a, a universal claim. Forgive me. The reason I asked you the question was because I, I expected given your reputation as a conservative and lauded and fated in American conservative circles, that you might be more wanting to defend sort of American interventions. No, no. I, I actually, look, I, I, was, I was an enthusiastic supporter of Reagan, Ronald Reagan in college, and of Thatcher. I, ho- I, I hope your listeners will forgive me. <laughs> You you could just say I was very young if you like, but but I, I was I was very much on on that side. But Reagan never invaded anything larger than Grenada, which is this you know this tiny island off of you know off of South America. The war lasted a week, and there were a couple of dozen casualties. Reagan was active in fighting the the Soviet Union, but he was not active in invading other countries. You know, yeah. He didn't go to Afghanistan with you know with a theory of liberalism or feminism or 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 democracy or whatever it is, saying, you know, gosh darn it, we're going to teach these Afghani's how to live because because yeah. we know and they don't. Yeah. Right. That that's a completely different world. And I I initiated a big conference uh, this summer in in Washington on national conservatism. And I'll I'll repeat the argument that I made there. When I joined the conservative movement in the 1980s, it was very clear to us, to the to me and my circle in our magazine, that conservatism stood for religion, for nationalism, and for economic growth. That formula. That three-part formula, that's from Irving Kristol, who was considered at the time our, our great teacher. That's, that's William Kristol's father. And we were happy. I was happy and comfortable with that. And I can tell you the exact moment when I, I felt that something had gone terribly wrong. The Berlin Wall fell. And it's the following year, 1990, 1991, and, and George H.W. Bush is talking about a new world order. And it's not simply an expression. First of all, he kept coming back to it. And it's not simply an expression. He said what it was. His, I first heard this on the radio, and I remember a chill going down my spine and thinking, I can't believe that after all of this, isn't this what the Americans and the British, the Allies, fought World War II and against the communists exactly to avoid having this kind of new world order? And here it is, and he's explaining that for a hundred generations, mankind has struggled to reach this moment, and they've all failed, but we will succeed. And his description, what will they succeed at? We're going to replace the law of the jungle with the rule of law, right? So the, the, the world is going to be wrapped in a rule of law that, according to 
Bush. I mean, other presidents saw it slightly differently. But according to Bush, the law was going to come forth from the United Nations Security Council, and America was just going to enforce it. And I felt like they had completely lost the thread of what it was all about. So what, what were the seeds within conservatism that made that thought possible? Well, see, the, 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 there's a big argument about this. I, I don't actually think it's I don't think it's conservative. I mean, the the way I understand conservatism, which is, you know, it, it has to be some kind of a, uh, a a descendant of Selden and Burke, maybe Adam Smith, Montesquieu. But these conservative thinkers, what they all have in common is is a skepticism about this idea that your brain can generate a universal theory, which can then be imposed on the entire world. All of them are skeptics with respect to that. So where does it come from? It comes from the alternate tradition. It comes from Enlightenment rationalism, uh, from from uh, John Locke and Rousseau's uh, second treatise and from Kant. And these are universalist theories in which there is no plur- plurality of, of nations in the world. There's just... This is sort of my hard left background beginning to bubble up now. But didn't the conservative tradition open its way for this by a sort of uncritical acceptance of an economic capitalism as a way of managing. Yeah, I think um, I, I think that's a completely that's a completely fair criticism. Irving Kristol was famous for a book that he wrote in the nineteen seventies called Two Cheers. Two Cheers, two, yeah. two cheers for yeah. Capitalism. And that Two Cheers for Capitalism is the extent to which I and my young friends were Capitalists. His argument was, and you know, I'm 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 happy to to hear arguments on different sides. So far as I know, this is true. His argument was that the fastest way to generate wealth for a society is through capitalism. But on the other hand, capitalism, to the extent that uh, the model of consent, contract, and trade in all things, to Free trade and free free wheeling and, and among consenting adults to the extent that that becomes the the model for the family, the model for the nation. For Irving Kristol, it was it would corrupt and destroy everything in its path. I mean, big business has destroyed more borders than than most other things. But, but if you if you look at look at our conference this summer, the National Conservatism Conference, which is a, a rebellion against the liberal interp- the the view that to be a republican or to be a tory means to be a liberal yeah what do i mean by liberal i mean a, a liberal is someone who, who's the only real political principles that they understand are every individual should be free every individual should be equal and everyone should consent to everything they do that's it that's their world view that's a world in which there are no nations no one's loyal to their family because cause I wake up after, you know, listen, I've been uh, married for 20 years. Now I, I no longer consent. So I don't like my wife. My, my kids are annoying. They get really annoying when they're teenagers, right? So I don't consent. So, so, so I leave. Right? There has to be a place for mutual loyalty, for solidarity, uh, for, for, solidarity for honor, for being something more than simply a trader if you're going to build something that's going to last through generations. And this is, I mean, this, it seems to me, is a fascinating point in the moment of conservative thought when it starts to say things like this. I mean, I I had Roger Scruton on this uh, Confessions uh, a little while back, and I said to him, you're a conservative, um, and yet 
you know, with with capitalism, you embrace the greatest change agent the world has ever known, which is which is um, which is capitalism. And how does that fit together with wanting to conserve and keep? It's and, in, it's intention. It's clearly intention. It's been it's been intention for for centuries. In Montesquieu, who is in many ways is a very, very good model of a, of a conservative, he understands exactly what the problem is. And he says that to the extent that you think the way that a commercial agent or a trader thinks, there are no borders and the world is completely open. And he doesn't, he doesn't see, he sees the good in it and he sees, sees the evil in it. And the same, the same is true for Burke and the same is true for Adam Smith. And if you go to America, John Adams and Hamilton, today they're falling out of favor. Why? Because they believed in tariffs, because they wanted to defend the fledgling industries of their country. Conservatives have always said our job as the government of a given nation is to do the best possible for that nation. Right. And so the extent to which capitalism is attractive is if it does succeed in lifting the country out of poverty. And the extent to which it is not attractive is when it starts destroying everything else. So it needs to know its place. The whole conservative view of capitalism, you could just boil it down to, and this is, this is crystal, religion, nationalism, and economic growth. He puts religion first explicitly, and he puts economic growth last. Why? Because he, he believes that the religion and the nationalism is required to keep the economic growth within its bounds, that it does its job and doesn't destroy everything else. Returning a little bit to the EU, because that's our, uh, you know, that, that's our obsession at the moment. We're tearing ourselves apart over our membership of the European Union. Brexit, I presume, is absolutely squarely uh, in keeping with your political philosophy. I love Brexit. I admire the Brexiteers. I wish them well. I have, look, I'm just an onlooker from the side. Yeah. I, I mean, somebody brought me to a conference a few months ago, and I, and I gave a from-the-heart Brexit speech to a, you know, a crowd of a couple of hundred people in London. But you know, really, an, at a certain level, it's none of my business. But, but I, you have views on Europe. I mean, that's, that's, that no, is that, part of your business. That's true. But my sympathy for the British regaining their independence is, I, I think I would feel this, you know, if it, if it were any other imperial entity also. It's true that I don't, I don't, I don't like the European Union very much. Uh, but the British are such a great people. I've written and, and, and published quite a bit on, on, uh, on Newton and on Hume and on the common law tradition and the way that conservatism grew out of the uh, the British love for scripture and the parallel with Israel. It's such an incredible history. And it's not just history. We're talking about the, the fifth or the sixth largest economy in the world. It breaks my heart that people are so scared. I just, I just can't believe it. I can't believe it. If Britain can't make it as an independent nation, then who can? I mean, it, so it hurts. It, hurt, it, it hurts to see. I mean, you forgive me, but it just, just as, as a foreigner, I've never lived in England, and I'm sure that there are many things I don't understand. But in Theresa May, it was simply the picture of helpless, weak government, afraid and stammering and unable to take the least difficult step in order to advance her people. It was painful. And I'm so glad to see her gone. <laughs> well, I share that. Um, but I, I suppose that the flip side, uh, Joram, is, is to 
that Theresa May is the is the sort of problem of the strong leader, you know. So, I mean, and usually there's a sort of unholy trinity that are, well, there's more, I says, but but in, in, in England there's, there's Bibby and there's Trump and now there's Boris. <laughs> and they're often seen, I mean, there's more, there's Modi, there's, there's Hungary, there's all sorts of other sort of things. But you're getting, I mean, what a lot of people will are afraid of though many will you know may well agree with a lot of what you've said is that this alliance between populism something like that and slightly morally unscrupulous political leaders is something that's now becoming you know something that you wouldn't particularly want expect as a religious conservative to admire. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in defending being morally unscru unscrupulous. Um, I, I am a little bit sensitive to the hypocrisy of claiming as though it's Boris and Bibi and Trump who invented being morally unscrupulous. That does bother me. I worked for Bibi many, many years ago, and I think I got to see plenty of politics from the inside, and I think I, I have a pretty good understanding of how it works. And politics is always going to be difficult for a morally scrupulous and especially for a religiously pious person. All right? I mean, when, when I was working for— I guess I want to press you a bit on this. No, I mean, it was, it's, I was, right, it's the I, right I, thing to do, I, though, isn't I, it? I, I was working for Bibi all those years ago. Right, this decade in the nineties. Right, this is decades ago in the nineties, and uh, and in ninety five. And he he uh, appears on national television in the middle of a primary, accusing his primary rival of of having secretly taped him having an affair with a married woman, and you know I I had been working really hard, and I called my. Rabbi, I called a few people, but I called, the best answer I got was from from my rabbi, and I said, "Yeah, how can I do this? I mean, I really am, you know, I I, I see myself as a as a as a moral person, and here I'm going to be defending the, defending this guy who's not only not only is he sleeping with somebody else's wife, but now he's on national television talking about it, and I and I wanted to quit, and my rabbi says, "I'm sorry, Yoram, but you don't understand," and. I said, what? What don't I understand? And he, he quoted the Talmud. I remember this like yesterday. Uh, this saying of the rabbis, Iftah bedoro keshmuel bedoro. Jephthah in his generation is as Samuel in his generation. In other words, Jephthah, this this low, crude, boorish, not not just not just criminal, but this low life who who in the end ends up offering his own daughter as a in place of an animal as a as a sacrifice to God. I mean, just something something terrible. And the Talmud says, the rabbis say, he in his generation is like the great saint Samuel in his generation. What, what does that mean? It means he was the he was the best that they had then, and he, and he did go out and save Israel. He did go out and defeat the Ammonites. He did restore Israel's independence. And my rabbi said to me, "Look, if you want you want to be in politics, then you need to ask yourself the following question: Is this man the best of the available alternatives? If he's the best of the available alternatives, then it's a mitzvah. Then you are." obligated to do what you can to bring him to power and to help him. And if he's not, then quit. 
but you 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 can't quit because he has various vices if he's the best that's available. I bet you don't like that answer. Maybe you would. Well, I recognise truth in it. I mean, I recognise I, I recognise that that, and I suppose this is what I'm trying to press you on because I'm fascinated by how this works. So we have a whole body of scriptural reasoning on morality and the ability to live up to it and to implement it and to seem so impossible sometimes and there comes a point where what do you i don't know where does one's ideals and one's practicality when they meet when they meet and they conflict with each other look this is there is to go just back to theology for a moment the the last few years i've had the honor um of uh, re- receiving a couple of uh, uh, large grants to research and teach, run seminars and institutes on biblical theology, which since since we're Jews, it, it's what you would call Old Testament theology. And Hebrew scriptures is what I'd call Hebrew it. scriptures. <laughs> and to my surprise, most of the people who came to study at these institutes over quite a few years were Christian from all sorts of different denominations. So I, before that, I didn't know much about Christianity, but I, I've learned a thing or two. One of the central things that I learned about Christianity in the last decade through meeting these hundreds of wonderful people is that there is a kind of a, a, kind of a civil war almost going on in Christendom across all denominations between those who are still deeply connected to Hebrew scripture, to the Old Testament as part of the Christian scripture, as an essential part, and those who are what one of my friends, my, my minister friends calls uh, functional Marcionites, that they don't, they don't say it openly, but in, in, in fact, they've reduced it all to the gospel and the Psalms and, you know, a few passages in, in, in Isaiah. Uh, and I see this I mean, as I say, across all the denominations, it's the, the split is taking place. And much of the argument has to do with whether Hebrew scripture is a legitimate moral teaching, whether it has a legitimate moral teaching to offer. It's all about compromises. It's all about political leaders who are, every one of them failed in some other way. It's all about brutally violent uh, wars in order to conquer land and territory and what needs to be done politically in order to maintain that territory. It's very, very realistic. And I would even say, I mean, not all would agree, but I would even say that the God of the Old Testament is realistic in that sort of way, that that he 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 is struggling to bring Israel and the world up a bit in context that is just often horrible, horrific. And the, Mars- the neo-Marcionism is a sort of religion of wanting to keep your hands clean. Yeah, well, look, look. I'm, I, here I'm not interpreting the New Testament because I'm not an expert, but as I understand it from, from my Christian friends, this tendency is to say, look, in the New Testament we have God is love, Right, that doesn't appear in the Old Testament. We have uh, uh, turn the other, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. We, I mean, there, there are all of these famous passages that you can build if you want to. You can build a nationless world of pure saintly individuals who don't need to get involved. And again, I'm not saying that's what it, no, it no, means, no, no, yeah. but if it, but if you're looking for that. Boy, you're not going to find it in the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is just not about that. It doesn't. It doesn't. It just doesn't give you anything. So, th- theologically, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what's going to happen if 
within the different Christian movements, one way or another, the side wins that says, well, all those compromises that you know that you find in in Hebrew Bible in order to be able to actually build a nation and actually win wars and actually get the job done of of, of allowing a minimally decent society to exist. Well, that, that stuff's not our problem. It's in God's hands. We don't have any any right to do those things. Our job is to be clean hands and to be pure. That's scary. That's really frightening for me. What 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 will we do if if we lose Christianity to that? Yoram Hasani, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Confessions.